Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. This year has been a really busy year for us here on the podcast. In 2019, we released over 57 episodes covering everything from growth to sales to product and marketing. We also had over 750,000 downloads, making it a record year for us. So this week, we're bringing you a roundup of some of our favorite conversations from across the year. One of the most gratifying characteristics of the community within SAS is just how many talented thinkers and leading companies are willing to share what they know. It's had an enormous influence on the way we do business here at Intercom. And with this podcast, we've tried to pass all that knowledge along to you too. This year, we were especially intrigued at how the relationship between sales and marketing has really strengthened in the era of the educated customer. When and if you should think about becoming a platform, how to build a killer rewards program, how content design has become the front line between product and consumer, how sales leaders can maintain their momentum after enjoying that initial success, and even what we can learn from the high-flying human cannonball at the circus. So, without further ado, let's head over to the studio and hear from all these great guests. Today, customers are better informed than ever. That's why companies need to do a better job of articulating the value of their product instead of just recapping functions and features. One of the ways that buyers are educating themselves is with review sites, just like G2.com. G2's CMO, Ryan Benici, guested on the show earlier this year and shared how that impacts the way marketing and sales teams interact, considering that customers are landing on their site with a lot more information. I mean, I think, you know, any site really should do what we talked about earlier in the sense of where someone hits you on your site, where they drop into the site if they're dropping into the homepage. You know, if they're coming to the homepage through direct traffic, then that's pretty indicative that they already know a bit about you. If they've like gone to their browser and actually typed in your URL. If they're coming to a blog post about your company or uh, from your content team, then you know that they probably don't know that much if it's just organic traffic coming through and maybe it's the first time that they've ever visited. So I think it really depends. I'm a big believer, though, that like wherever someone is, you always want to have like a flag or a way for them to raise their hand or to move forward in their journey. So an example would be, you know, and where you send out when someone subscribes to our blog, you know, they might receive an email once a week with our three or five most popular blog posts from mm-hmm. that week. But then in the bottom of the email, it'll be a plain text email, really simple. Hey, Jarrell, thanks so much for subscribing to our marketing blog. As we did every week, here are the top five, you know, most popular blogs. Hope you enjoy them. Best, Ryan. And then we'll always have typically a PS line below or something that says, PS, if you'd like to learn more about our software services or something like that, or if you'd like to speak to a sales rep, or if you'd like to test out some of G2's data on the back end, schedule a meeting with us here. So I'm, I'm a big believer in not assuming you know where a person is in their journey and allowing them the ability to be able to jump ahead before you assume So that's one thing. But I think there are a ton of different ways. So we see a lot of traffic actually to our site from vendors' sites. So, you know, vendors will be typically, you know, Zoom does this, like Zoom.us, Unbounce do this. They'll have literally on their homepage, it'll say, you know, we are the leader in blah, insert category by 5,000 people on G2 Crowd. Yeah. G2, or G2.com. I really got to get better at saying that. <laughs> um, and then people then click through to go to G2 to learn and they come back. 
So I think vendors can do a good job at like surfacing, assuming they know where you are at in your journey. Sure. They can surface those data points of social proof and reviews to help then you feel more comfortable or confident about the product or service that you're buying. Yeah. I think on the flip side, though, where companies can do a better job is tracking the traffic sources to their site. So an example would be, you know, you have an intercom profile on G2. When someone clicks to learn more, I don't know what what your team did, but most marketers will just put in like intercom.com or they'll put in maybe intercom.com forward slash products. A a really smart data-driven marketer would put whatever URL they want then a little question mark with a UTM code that says that activates a campaign on that page. And it might then show additional data or it might have a requested demo form or something that's like a further along the lines because you know if they've been on G2 Crowd, they've clicked through. They're pretty qualified at this point in time. Just bringing in that context. Yeah, exactly. You need to bring that context and have a pop-up for them that only they see because they have that special UTM code. So think like that. They're just some of those like smaller tactics but, but I think at the end of the day, with regard to vent, like sellers or businesses and their own sites, I think they just need to do a better job at articulating the value that their product gives to their customers and prospects versus calling out what it is that they do. Sure. So Slack does this really well. So does Asana. But like when you hit Slack.com, Slack says like, I think they say like where work happens. That's sure. their tagline, right? They don't say you know, the world's fastest growing chat platform. Sure. Because that doesn't really mean that much. Like, I'm not looking for a chat platform. I'm trying to get work done. (laughs) Yeah. What is a platform? Well, Bill Gates defines it as the point when the value of the stuff built on top of your product surpasses the value of the product on its own. Intercom's group product marketing manager, Jasmine Jome was joined by C.C. Stallsmith, Slack's Director of Platform Marketing, to discuss how to know if you're ready to become a platform of your own. Obviously, Box and Slack, both strong platforms. Platform's kind of a hot topic, right? Everyone wants to be a platform at the moment. What makes companies like Box and Slack real platforms versus just products that have kind of great extensibility and why do you think it's important to their business strategy to actually become a platform? Yeah, yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, I think everyone likes to call themselves a platform and I think platform is one of the most overused words. It almost loses its (laughs) meaning. I mean, you've been working in platform too. So like at a certain point, it's like everyone's using this. Does it mean anything anymore? So I think it's important to figure out what the heck does platform mean and what is a platform and what is not. When I was in venture, you meet with, you know, at least 20 founders every week, talk about their products. If you weren't, you know, actively doing a single deal and you meet with these tiny companies and they'd be like, and we're the platform. It's like, no one knows even who you are. Like, how are you a platform yet? (laughs) Uh, So that is something I care about a lot. I think it's tricky. Not everyone can be a platform if the nature of platforms existing means that some products have to be built as extensions of the platform itself. I also have a thesis or theory, I wrote about it, that platforms beget platforms. So one of the good ways to identify what is a platform versus what isn't is to think about like what really is. So Windows, that was a massive platform, still is. iOS, Facebook, Salesforce, like those are true platforms. Bill Gates actually uh, defined a platform, and this is a pretty high bar. I don't think many people have met it, <laughs> as once the value of the stuff built on top of your platform in some surpasses the value of your product by itself, that's when it's a quote-unquote true platform. I think that's quite a high bar, but it's what I like to strive for. The litmus test, I think, is if you've created a marketplace. Like, are people actually 
pursuing to build on your product because there's value that you've created to the platform there? Or is it just a a nifty integration? For instance, like you build on iOS because you know you're going to get users through it. Same for the other big ones that I talked about. But there is this other area, and I don't have a term for these kinds of tools. I think the easy term you could use is like developer tools. But there's like the Twilio's and the Stripes of the world. Those are big, amazing companies. Are they platforms? Like Stripe definitely has a marketplace. But I also know that Stripe is just a really useful product that I want to plug into my product that I'm building to help transact money. Like Twilio, I need it for text messages. So those are developer tools for sure. Are they platforms? I'm not sure. And then how you know if you're not a platform, I think there's really just, is there any value in in integrating with your product? Or do you need to be doing all the integrations so that your customers get value versus having partners and developers wanting to come and build with you? Mm -hmm. That's how I look at it a little bit. Yeah, that makes yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, should companies all be trying to become platforms even? Because it's obviously fashionable yeah. <laughs> at the moment to do that. Do you think it actually, there are times where it makes sense to actually pursue that and start trying to build that value and times where it just simply doesn't and you should just stay as a product? Yeah, I think there's, it's tricky because the answer should be yes. The reason why you'd want to pursue being a platform or having a platform is because it makes your value as a pro- as a company, as a product, that much greater. Mm-hmm. Like the upside of having this big two-sided marketplace and extending your product into tons of different products with an API is quite large. It probably <laughs> m- multiple, like increases your products or your company's multiple in terms of valuation quite a bit to really have a platform. It makes yeah. you more useful. If there's the opportunity to be a platform, great. On the flip side... Developer time and mindshare is precious. Like, it is not worth trying to go pursue building a developer community if there's not actually value there for them. And you can kind of fake it for a couple years, I think. I think it's very doable to figure out how you can win some developer interests over by trading good things for their interests. But at the end of the day, they're going to see through whether or not you're adding real value to them. Like, marketing can only go so far, basically. So, and getting paid to develop on something can only go so far. So uh, I do think a big part of figuring out whether this is not the strategy for your business is, do I actually have something of value to give to developers? Because that to me is what matters. That's why when I saw the Slack opportunity, I was like, I just have to go. It's just too cool because there was such value being added to developers from early days. And there was so much developer demand before Mm -hmm. we had a Actual, an actual platform for third-party developers to build on. That, that's where I was like, oh, this is going to be a true platform, and I'm really, really excited about it, instead of something that people think, oh, this will be a platform someday. But in reality, we're all just going to say it. We're going to go forward. It's not really going to end up that way, and, and we're all going to be fine. We'll move forward and move on. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's great to not be a platform too, but there's obviously a lot of, it's lucrative to be yes. able to develop one. Yeah, very enticing. <laughs> yeah, everyone wants to be the center of the wheel. Yeah. And the truth is, I think... In each generation and cycle of technology, you only get a couple major ones that have significant lasting impact on the industry. And that's why Mm. when I list off Windows, iOS, Facebook, it's like, yeah, those are some of the biggest names. But they shaped the industry because they they figured out how to build the platform that everyone built to. Mm. And it's interesting with iOS. They like didn't even, Steve Jobs didn't even want to, but that turned out (laughs) to be a great thing. Rec CFO Michael Tannenbaum and his team created a lucrative reward system for startups, which they were able to do through group purchasing, taking advantage of a vertical that allowed them to buy software packages. 
Tara Larson, Intercom's Manager for Early Stage Programmes, chatted with Michael earlier this year about some of their more creative approaches to advertising and the benefits of acting bigger than you are. So you mentioned a few different channels and things that you learned through the attribution model. One of them that has been making a splash is your rewards program. Now, if you're in the Bay Area, you've likely seen the the billboards or other ads that promote the over $100 million you've been able to give back to startups. That's incredible. That's super catchy. As someone who works in the startup space, I want to get a slice of those rewards. How were you able to build such a powerful rewards network? And how have those partnerships been important to us? Yes, totally. Well, the inspiration for the uh, billboard campaign came from the McDonald's billion customer serve. They used to do that as, you know, Tara, (laughs) we're both from New England. We know what goes down at the McDonald's. You've got me smiling and here. Yes, yeah, yeah. so we, you know, I think McDonald's is probably everywhere, but we definitely, uh, re- I remember they sort of said a billion customers served and had that sort of counter. So that was the creative inspiration. But the reason we've been able to offer such lucrative rewards for startups is we've done what people in the broad industry call group purchasing, which means we take the fact that, we take advantage of the fact that we have this specific vertical that's all buying mainly software. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Intercom is a perfect example. So many of our customers are buying Intercom that we can actually go to someone like you, a la our meeting you know, a year ago when we were small, and say, we represent all these companies, and if you give us a discount, then you know we can pass that along to our companies in the form of rewards. It's great for Intercom because Intercom would get you know new startups on using them. Mm -hmm. And it's great for Brex because we're able to pass on a discount to our customers. And I think we've done that with a number of software vendors, probably most notably AWS, because AWS is just so expensive that they're able to offer a pretty big discount to our customers. The partnerships, too, have enabled you to align yourself with these really established tech companies. How has that been helpful for marketing? Is that part of the strategy as well? It is. I mean, I think with Brex, what we've tried to do is really do big concentrated launches that add, we've always acted bigger than we are. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we launched, we had, you know, paid media all over the city, we in, in the form of outdoor and out of home. We had tons of press because we waited, basically combined two rounds into one announcement. So we seemed everywhere. We had, you know, we were on social. We did this big launch. But then when we when we did rewards, that was probably about four months after we launched the product. We all, we came out and we said, well, we have Amazon. We have WeWork. We have DoorDash. You know, we had Salesforce. So we had some big names. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was like, well, we're Brex, right? We have this dopey nothing. And we've got these huge companies. Yeah, now you're in the lineup with those really well-known brands that are household names and driving real results and impact for their customers. Totally. So partnerships is important for sure. 2019 saw us launch three new series on the podcast, Scale, The Sales Summit, and Intercom on Product. This last one has hugely resonated with our audience. And why wouldn't it? It's their chance to hear Intercom co-founder Des Trainer and our VP of product, Paul Adams, discuss everything from what our product building principles are to how to unlock the power of feedback. In this next clip from episode five, Des and Paul discuss the dreaded product bloat. When we talk about, say, something like bloat, you know, what bloat is effectively, in some sense, is a way of saying, 
for every feature, there is a user, not mm. for, you, you know, and for every user, there is a feature. Mm. However, it might be like a pretty, um, there might be like 5% adoption for all of your features. Yeah. Uh, but it's, a, but again, it's a different 5% of customers or whatever. So in, you know, to expand your addressable market, you kind of have to start peeling back some of the opinions that, that on one hand, win you customers because they're like, hell yes, we want you know, automatic archiving of emails that are greater than seven days old and automatic tagging of, you know, like to appeal to those people, that's going to get you your early customers. But you have to kind of wind that back as you think, right, now let's talk to people beyond that. And yeah. the point I often make to early stage sharps when they really want to overcook or overserve is every opinion kind of costs you money. Like if, if you're selling me a project management app, let's just pick that as it's kind of the problem space everyone knows. Mm you're already down to a certain sliver of the market. And then you're going to say, and we have an OSX client only. And you're like, okay, grand. Well, there you're reeling at all the Windows users. Okay, cool. What's next? And we believe all tasks must have an owner. Okay, now you're down to only people who believe that too. And we believe all tasks should auto expire if they're not completed in five days. And you're like, okay, you're getting pretty uh, peculiar here. Yeah. So you, you're whittling down your opinion so tight. And like the challenge you always have to have as a software owner is like, for all the opinions that I'm hard coding, what's the ROI of them? Like, they better be paying you off in marketing and kind of the attractiveness to like towards the peculiar bunch that you are building for because they're costing you everything else in the market. Yeah. And then if you are successful over time, you get to start like in the words of OEM, like losing your religion in a sense because yeah. you have to start kind of being like, all right, maybe to-dos can be unknown for a period. Okay, yeah. I know we said never, but like I guess now is never. Yeah. So you kind of have this tension. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a journey we've been on, losing our yeah. religion yeah, yeah. over the years, for sure. You know, a lot of the opinions, strong opinions we had in the past, yeah. we've let go of. Yeah. Um, as you're talking there, it makes me think there's there's a relationship between a product growing and, and the market growing. Yeah. So like as you add a feature, yeah. the market grows. The and market, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. the product's growing and the and the the market's growing and the product growing and they're growing yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, it also reminded me of the way we work with our sales team yeah. here, yeah. where we we're building like deeper and deeper collaborations with our sales team. Mm -hmm. They obviously talk to customers, prospective all the time, very deep understanding of the needs, the gaps in the product. The easiest way, of course, to fill those gaps is features. Mm -hmm. It's our job in product and engineering to build those features. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we are very strong on is that we will never build a single feature for yeah. a single customer. Yeah. Having said that, what we will do is when a customer says, hey, we need feature X, yeah. we will then like go and look, do other customers need yeah. feature X? This is a common thing, yeah. It's, is it a common thing, yeah. And yeah. I think that's how we so far are like navigating and hopefully avoiding this like bloatedness yeah, yeah. That, that comes. Yeah. And for the most part, most of the features I, that most of the customers see, at least they understand. Yeah. And so like I come back to email here too, like I'm thinking, thinking about Gmail. Yeah. There's many, many features in Gmail, many, many people don't use, mm -hmm. but they kind of make sense. Mm -hmm. Ar you know, archive, tag, filters, mm -hmm. right? These are like understandable things. Yeah. And they're kind of bloated. For me, when, when software gets bloated, it's when you see things in the product that you just don't know what they do. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way 
to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Content design is a relatively young discipline and the ways in which it's practiced change so often that people are inventing new rules, tools and approaches to it all the time. That helps everyone innovate, especially when they share them out. Here I chatted with Intercom's own senior designer, Jonathan Coleman, about what people often misunderstand about this emerging discipline. I think we're at the point in content design kind of strategy where there's, you know, a foundational layer of best practices, which is great. But it's still so new and the ways in which it's practiced change so often that um, people are inventing uh, new rules, new tools, just new approaches all the time, which is great. Um, that helps everyone innovate, especially when they share them out. So it's a little bit like the early days of, I don't know, something like baseball or basketball or golf, where like, you know, we know there's something here. Uh, we're just sort of trying to capture what's, what's the, what's sort of the foundational bits of it. So the good part of that is all of this innovation. And so the way I explain it to people is try to remember this phrase that this information architect and good friend of mine, Abby Covert, uses. She's a uh, staff information architect at Etsy. Mm -hmm. And her whole thing is that we make the unclear clear. And that's it. Because that's how the, the discipline started, really, wasn't it, with the UK government and that idea of having to explain really, really complex ideas to literally everybody. Yeah, that's right. So Sarah Richards, who's a content designer with GDS and gov.uk, she sort of codified this term content design. And, and yes, that is exactly the problem she wanted to solve. They wanted to make things so simple and so useful and so understandable by such a rich, diverse audience of people that content design were the two things that really encapsulated that mission. She has a whole book about it called, appropriately enough, content design. And it's just brilliant. Do you think it requires of the person to be a little bit stronger, maybe on EQ, than other roles? It's very possible. This sort of emotional quotient, yeah. this idea really does come into it. What you really need to be a strong content designer is flexibility, adaptiveness, uh, clearly active listening, um, because you're always looking for those cues about what people really care about or the problems they're really experiencing. But perhaps more than anything else, what content designers really need to be good at is drawing together all the different strings of knowledge, information, activity, different repositories of, of work and code and history. What content designers often don't do is sit around at their desks, just sort of plugging away at the content. What they tend to spend much more of their time doing is out talking to people, either customers, users of products other people in the organization, mm -hmm. because what they want to do is build all those alliances. They want to draw those people in, get them concerned, get them passionate about the content and the quality of the user experience, just as they are. But also they want access to all of that cultural information because they're trying, in, in terms of making the unclear clear, one of the things they're trying to do is to help the organization communicate in a very simple, 
and very on-voice sort of way. So you're really essentially at that front line between the product and the consumer. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great way of putting it. I think you're at this point where... It's not just you against your organization. Yeah. Probably wouldn't pitch it that way, but it's something more on the lines of like you, the content designer, probably do not do all of the product communication because mm -hmm. the product is so big and there's just you most of the time. And many content designers operate as sort of armies of one where it's really just them in, in this gigantic uh, company organization. So it's usually not you. What you're doing is you're helping everyone who touches communication in a product do what they do, but clearer and hopefully better and in, in a way that creates a better experience for people. So for example, it might be uh, something where like, oh, someone on the marketing team creates this experience or writes this bit, or it might be say an engineer who's going through all the different error states and coming up with error messages. You as you know, the army of one probably can't be successful writing everything. That's okay. Yeah. So long as you enable everyone else to do what they do, but clearer and better. Back in July on Inside Intercom, I spoke to Lean UX author Jeff Gotthelf about why failure to adapt to your changing environment can really break your business. He advised us to always test your assumptions. He also shared a fascinating story about a human cannonball who was badly injured when circus employees follow the same old process they always had, even though the conditions had changed. There's one story from your past that I saw in one of your lovely talks that you gave where you talked about having worked in a circus. And I was really, really struck by it. Um, I don't know if you want to, if you want to share an abridged version of it, but there was just that you, you talk about the human cannibal and an issue with the mannequin. And I won't ruin it because I, I would love you to tell it for the audience. But I wonder is when a company is scaling, is there some sort of analogy to be made between the weight of your mannequin being like the stuff that you bring on board with you as the company grows? So. I'll tell the story and then I can definitely tie it back. Yeah. And, I mean, because there's a reason why I tell the story, not just because it's a cool story. Well, it's a pretty cool story, but it is a really nice analogy. Yeah. So um, so my first job out of university was with a circus. <laughs> I, I was the, the sound and lighting technician for the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus, which was a three ring tented circus, very traditional kind of circus that went up and down the East coast of America for about, about nine months. I spent six months on the road and I met a lot of super interesting people. And the most, one of the most interesting people that I met during that time was the human cannonball. Now, this guy was the, the picture of what, what in the U.S. is called All-American. He was a football player. He was blonde hair, blue eyes. He was fit. And, and his job was literally to fly out of a cannon during a two-minute act in every show. He, we did two shows every day, so he worked four minutes a day and land <laughs> in a net on the other side of the tent. That was the act. Now, this was, I mean, this was 20 years ago, and he, you know, it was, it was a fairly mechanical process here. There was no, no digital technology here. It was a, it was a spring. It was a, it wasn't a real cannon, obviously. It was a spring-loaded cannon. You'd hope they've added to the technology since then just a little bit. You would, you would hope, you would hope. Um, and basically, he would, you know, he'd slide down the cannon, the barrel of the cannon, and the ringmaster would hit a button and the spring would 
trigger and it would push him out and he would you know fly across and land in a net. Now, the way that they would determine where to put up the net every every time we came to a new circus lot, which was every two days, is they had a mannequin. They had a they had a doll that weighed about the same as the guy. And you know, we'd we'd pull up to a new place, they'd put up the tent, they would drive the cannon, the cannon was on the back of a truck, they would drive the cannon truck in, they'd park it, they'd mark the parking spot, they'd aim the cannon, put the, the mannequin in, fire it, and wherever it landed, that's where they put up the net. It's just not the most exact science. Yeah. <laughs> and that worked every night of the week for years, right? Mm-hmm. And then one one night there was the cannon truck was late arriving to the circus lot. And instead of testing out the location that night, they were going to do it in the morning. And so they left the mannequin out overnight and it rained. And the next day they did exactly the same thing they had done night after night for years. They put the mannequin in, they fired it wherever it landed, they put the net up. And that afternoon in front of 4,000 children, the human cannonball got in, waved goodbye, and when the cannon fired him, he was significantly lighter than the mannequin, and he flew way past the net in front of all these children. He was critically injured. He did not die, but he was definitely badly injured. And it's kind of a sad story, but at least least he lived to tell it in the end. And so, look, why do I tell the story? Obviously, because it's interesting and no no one has a, not a lot of people have circus stories. No, I'd wager it's the first time circuses have been mentioned in this podcast. I'm going to have to go back and check. Yeah. Look, I used, I used circus stories on my first date with my, with my future wife, you know, it was with my, with my wife to be, um, and, and I still, she still ended up marrying me. So that, that worked out. <laughs> um, but look, the story here is about assumptions, right? The connection here is about assumptions. There's a, we make a series of assumptions and they hold true for a while and we stop testing them. We stop ensuring that they're true. We stop validating them. And at one point or another, they're going to stop being true. And when they stop being true, the thing that we're doing is going to fail. Now, how critically we're going to fail depends on how big of an assumption we have. In this, in the circus story, right, we had a fairly big assumption that this guy was going to land safely in the net because he had done that continuously for years. And presumably no one would have fired him if, if that right. assumption hadn't been there. Exactly. But And so the same thing, if, you, if you're building your business and you begin to scale and you make the assumptions that – even though you're getting bigger and you're getting more customers and, and, and you know, that, that everything is going to continue to be the same, at some point that's going to break and it's going to, it's going to be critical to the success of your, of your culture, your organization, and your business. And so it's important to continuously test those assumptions. There's a phrase I love. I learned it by, from a TED Talk, which sounds like the most cliche thing to say these days, but it's true. <laughs> There's a TED Talk by a guy named Astro Teller which is a great name. Astro Teller runs Google X, their moonshot laboratory. And in his talk, he uses a phrase called enthusiastic skepticism. And that's how you have to run your business, with enthusiastic skepticism. It's this burning feeling that I can always be doing something better. There's always something that we should be improving. And I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic to find out what that is and how to make things better. That's the key to all of this. 2019 also marked the release of our book, Intercom on Sales. So to celebrate, we decided to have a little bit of fun with our usual podcast format. 
The Sales Summit series brought together sales leaders from Intercom and partners for panel discussions. In this next clip, you'll hear Intercom sales manager, Will Holden, when he sat down with Aircall's Colin Cadmus and Glowfox's Patrick Fitzgerald to uncover their secrets to scaling revenue. What other levers do you feel you have at your disposal to drive growth, as opposed to just throwing heads at the issue, which actually is a, a fairly valid approach to the problem to begin with. But perhaps Glowfox, now you're at the point whereby that's no longer rational. How are you uh, continuing to drive growth and how do you how do you wrestle with that challenge? Yeah, it's, um, it's a very critical challenge for us at the moment, actually. So, you know, Series A business, we have teams in Sydney and Dublin and in LA and mixture of inbound and outbound now. And as we focus on two core priorities, right, for for the next six months, really, the, the first is on is on recruitment and finding the right people to come in and mm. and and keep doing what we have done. But for every single one that we do take in, we have to make sure that their ramp time is shorter than the last person that joined. We need to make sure that everything that is good that has been done in in any time period is something that we are recording, that we are making available and visible to the rest of the team and standardizing then everything that all of the team is doing, right? So many people forget about that metric. Standardization. It, it, it just sort of, you know, filters away. It's like, hey, we're, we're moving really quick. We're growing. Let's just get on board. Let's get this figured out. Exactly. It's such a key metric. How long does it take for this person to approach productivity? And that needs to be socialized across the business, right? Finance needs to be aware of it. The enablement team needs to be aware. All the hiring managers need to be aware. Uh, you can very quickly run amok. By, by growing fast, but ultimately not producing for nine months. Absolutely true. You know, salespeople don't generate demand, right? It, you know, depending on your definition of a salesperson, but, you know, ultimately salespeople don't generate demand. They help close close it out. So, so what what can they do? They can maximize the value of the demand that they that they have, right? Right. And so so the kind of things that we're thinking about are, um, you know, we, we, we brought on a call recording system which um, enables us to see what high performers do that other people perhaps don't. It allows us to create that kind of competitive element across the team, view the topics that top performers speak about that others don't. It allows us to see the type of language that they use. And I'm going to jump to you now, Colin, particularly on that point around knowing what to optimize and when to optimize it. Maybe you could give us an overview of a few of those other levers that you guys are pulling to drive growth outside of growing headcount. But then Let's talk about that sales process that Patrick was alluding to and optimizing stages of it. I'd be really keen to get your take on how you plan that and, and how you approach optimizing a sales process. Yeah, so for me, the lead operations ties into to one of the pieces. We're also putting RevOps in place. So a lot of, I think, optimizing a team and making them more efficient is having dedicated teams who, whose job is actually to do that. And of course, you'll lean on your VP sales, you'll lean on your director of sales, your sales managers. But I think it, it when it really happens best is when you have people who are dedicated to doing it, whether they're implementing it or whether they're just helping you identify the opportunities. And hand in hand with that, I like to kind of move in cycles. And so I look at 2019 was a growth cycle for us. We did a lot of hiring. Our main efforts were towards hiring. Of course, you're always trying to optimize and perfect the process. But really, you can't do a whole lot of both at the same time until you're a much more mature organization and you have teams dedicated specifically to hiring and training. Whereas today, it's our directors and our managers who do the hiring. And so you know, they're going to be limited on how much they can do to change the process while they're training 30 new people and constantly recruiting. And so 
I look at 2020 is more of an optimized year for us. It's where we are going to do less hiring than we did this year, but we're going to aim to perfect different metrics in our funnel, uh, mm. different aspects of the sales process. And so I look at it in a couple ways. So because I have directors and managers, the way I split it up is I have the managers focus on the individual reps, right? Focus on identifying a metric with each rep every month yeah. that you're going to put a strategy in place to improve. Just pick one. Pick one and go all in on it. And then I have the directors focus on picking a metric every quarter for the entire team. And so you have the director who's kind of spearheading this one big initiative of, hey, we're going to, you know, an example for us earlier this year was, hey, we want to increase our our percentage of deals that prepay us annually versus monthly. And we put a whole strategy in place and it was a 90-day initiative. And then uh, you know, we executed it. We got it to 4X of, of where it was. And it's because we had laser focus on it. And you know, that was led from the top. That was me before we had a director. Yeah. But going forward, that'll be a director type initiative. And each quarter, I think every 90 days, you pick a metric and you really focus on it. Pick of rock, course, yeah. if it takes longer than 90 days, you know, keep going. And then you have to obviously sustain that. But I think if, if you can significantly improve four key metrics a year, you will have a significantly different team at the end of every year. And of course, that's hand in hand with the managers also focusing on yeah. the smaller details. Uh, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think yearly planning and getting the group together for you know, a definition of what we're going to be working on, absolutely key. We hope you enjoyed this year on the podcast as much as we did. Over the past 12 months, we've dug deep into everything from building platforms to reward programs. We've heard why designers deserve a larger seat at the table. We've explored how and when to freshen up your sales strategy, plus so much more. These are just the highlights after all. Looking ahead to 2020, we've already got some exciting interviews in the works, including the conclusion of the second season of Scale, Intercom's special series about moving from startup to scale up. Stay tuned in the new year to hear from Udemy's Yvonne Chen, chart mogul's Nick Franklin and more. We hope you'll join us.